Revelation, let's do this. Uh, chapter 1, I'm going to read verses uh, 1 through 3. This is the word of the Lord. Please give it your full attention. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. This is the word of the Lord. Let us uh, pray together. Gracious Father, thank you for your word. We pray that it would penetrate our hearts, our minds, uh, that we, Lord, would be given eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that believe. Lord, we pray that you would help us along, uh, help us to enjoy the journey through this letter. Uh, Help us, Lord, to uh, carry with us all the tools that you are giving to us today uh, and more that we will acquire so that our journey will be a pleasurable one and that in it we would see the victory of Christ. We bless your name. I decrease that you may increase. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning once again, brothers and sisters. I greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I do welcome you again on this Lord's Day Sabbath as we together uh, continue our new study through the letter of Revelation. This morning... Like last week, we will continue to introduce this letter uh, so that we are clear going forward. I am heavily, and I when I say heavily, heavily depending upon a number of resources. Uh, no minister is original. All of us stand on the shoulders of those who have come before us and even on the shoulders of those who are among us. Uh, even still... Each time we are given the opportunity to teach, we are teaching something that has been taught to us. It's very important for us to to know. So for this uh, series, I will be using a number of commentaries that I'm going to leave here so that if you'd like to take a picture of them or write them down, they are accessible to you. Uh, Commentaries like G.K. Beale from G.K. Beale, James Durham, uh, Moses Stewart, uh, Herman Hoxema. Uh, Dennis Johnson, which we will use a lot of Dennis Johnson today. Richard Phillips, which has really been helpful. Uh, another one by Moses Stewart. I said Moses Stewart. Don Johnson, not to be confused with the Don Johnson. Uh, and a number of other resources for the study through Revelation. Uh, this morning, I will take seven points directly from Dr. Dennis Johnson's commentary. Uh, they will be the headings, and I'll kind of fill it in with things that I've learned. So just to give you um, at least all kind of transparency, uh, I want to make sure that I'm I'm honoring those who have uh, helped me to learn, uh, and that I'm also not plagiarizing so that you guys, <laughs> you guys are, are aware that, that this is... Uh, pastor is being very upfront and honest about where this stuff is coming from. Uh, last week when we gathered together, we considered just kind of a few things, kind of introductory remarks. Remarks. I hope that you went back and heard that sermon. Uh, it will be helpful for you if you have not to go back and hear it. We asked the question, why are we even in Revelation to begin with? And the reason why we kind of concisely is because it's fitting. 
We had spent a number of years in the book of Genesis, and so it's fitting after considering the beginning to consider the end. Secondly, as we prepare to journey through Revelation together, we have been encouraged to leave our presuppositions behind. I hope you remember that. Leave our presuppositions behind. Presuppositions are those things that we assume to be true without ever spending a considerable amount of time to study them for ourselves. We assume that they are true without spending time to study them ourselves. They are really those things that we've mostly heard about but not really learn for ourselves. Uh, again, one of the big presuppositions that many of us have about Revelation is that the, thing, the things there are from our perspective and from the original perspective or from the original hearer's perspective in the future. Meaning they didn't happen for them yet. They haven't happened for us yet. We're still waiting for those things in Revelation to happen. This is called the futurist approach. The futurist approach. It is really the, uh, Anthony's favorite book, it's really the left-behind approach. The left-behind approach to Revelation. He sent all the men just a wonderful uh, message yesterday. So, Uh, Attached to this left-behind approach is the eschatological, meaning end-time view of premillennialism and pre-tribulationalism. Premillennialism and pre-tribulationalism. All of which I deny, all of which I will not be teaching from that particular point of view, and all of which I believe are harmful in terms of what they espouse. We learn that rather than uh, seeing the last days as a certain point in the future, we learn that the last days were marked when Christ rose from the dead, ascended into glory, and promised to return. Since Christ has ascended, We have been living in the last days. The ascension of Christ marked the beginning of the last days. Finally, we learned that revelation has been given to us for our blessing, for our encouragement. We find that in the very beginning of this letter. Blessed, not cursed, but blessed is he who reads and hears the words of the prophecy and heeds the things that are written in it, for the time is near. There is a blessing For all of us who read and who hear Revelation, it's given to us for our blessing, for our encouragement. So, as we embark upon this journey together, it will be a fun one. There is no time limit. I'm not saying we'll be done in a year. Who knows how long we'll be here? But I pray that in the time that we're here together, you will be encouraged because Revelation has been given to you for your encouragement. I pray that you would not be afraid. Because Revelation is not meant to, un- to, to cover and to conceal. It's meant to uncover, to expose, and to reveal the triumphant return of Christ. And also that he will protect and preserve his bride while we wait. Now, I think we can all agree on this concerning Revelation. At, at first glance, Revelation appears to be inaccessible. At first glance, it appears to be inaccessible. Meaning this, when we open the letter, it often appears as though it was sealed still and not opened. That the seals that, that uh, in the very beginning are, are be- that are being opened by Christ, that they actually haven't been opened because it's so confusing for us. And it's confusing for us, especially when we compare Revelation to other scriptures. John's apocalypse, that is Revelation, 
it's not a historical narrative. It's not like Genesis and it's not like 1 Samuel. That's clear. It's not a pastoral letter either. It's not like reading Romans or uh, Colossians. It's also not a collection of laws like Leviticus. Nor is it a collection of songs like Psalms or wise sayings like Proverbs. And yet, this letter does speak to us about actual historical events. It does open as an epistle addressed to seven churches. It is deeply concerned with covenant faithfulness. It is punctuated with songs of praise and songs of victory. And it demands wisdom to unlock the things that are found within. As I mentioned last week, whenever I would, or the week before, whenever I would read through this letter, though I might understand bits and pieces of it, for the most part, I would walk away from the letter of Revelation confused. It was almost as if Revelation was written in a completely different language. And, and to be honest with you, in a way, it kind of is written in a completely different language. We'll discuss this in a moment, but this letter appears to be written in a different language because of its, and this is an important note, literary style. Because of the literary style of Revelation, it seems altogether different from all of the other scriptures that we read. What is Revelation? Revelation is a vision. Revelation is a vision. It is one that has been given and one that the Lord Jesus Christ commanded should be written down and shared with the church. It's a revelation given to John and one that Christ commanded John to write down so that he could give it to the churches. But it's a vision. This would mean that it falls into this category or genre of prophecy. Yes, it's, it's a vision, but it's also a prophetic vision, which means that we must approach it in terms of interpreting. We must approach it with the principles that accompany interpreting visions. There are certain principles that accompany interpreting a vision that we must carry with us if we are going to understand it. It's not like reading Genesis. You just read it and it is what it is. It's completely different. Much like Daniel and Ezekiel, we must understand the revelation is filled with symbolism. And you must un understand the symbols if you're going to understand the visions. Uh, more on that in just a moment. <clears throat> revelation also contains significant portions of the Old Testament. As we read through Revelation, we will spend a lot of time in the Old Testament because there are many references or allusions to the Old Testament. There are also, in Revelation, a lot of teachings of Christ we'll find. There are also some portions of the epistles that we'll find in Revelation. Revelation is the apocalypse. That's what Revelation means. That's the translation. Apocalypse. Not the disastrous description of the end, but rather it is an unveiling. That's what apocalypse means. It's the unveiling. In visual form, though, it's an unveiling in visual form 
of invisible realities and forces that drive the visible realities of history. So we're seeing these invisible realities shown to us in the letter of things that will be visible realities. It's a challenging letter to understand. Moses Stewart said concerning the challenge of understanding Revelation, you cannot understand any individual passage in Revelation unless you understand the book as a whole. But you cannot understand the book as a whole unless you understand each individual passage. Which means we have our hands full. But we will follow Moses Stewart's footprints through Revelation and we'll do so with patience. Uh, expecting that each pass through its vivid imagery will unveil new and beautiful connections between truths that maybe we've passed, just passed by before. In order to have a right footing as we tread through this letter, I'd like to share with you seven principles for studying through Revelation that come directly again from Dennis Johnson's commentary. Now, these will be tools that we will use and carry along with us as we travel through this letter, uh, they will serve us as kind of a compass to make sure that we are staying on the right track. So, with God's help, let us begin. Number one, revelation. These are all things that we should remember. They, they, they are tools in our tool bag. Uh, imagine us traveling up a mountain together and we're putting all of these different tools inside of our backpack and carrying them along with us because we will need them for the, for the journey ahead. So, Revelation has been given to reveal. Revelation has been given to reveal. Verses 1 through 3, we've already read the verses. For many of us, <clears throat> when we have read this letter and see various mysterious passages that have caused us to be confused and frustrated, many of the times we need to remind ourselves this letter has not been given to you to confuse you it's been given to you to encourage you that's the first tool that you take with you as we go through this letter it's been given to you to encourage you not been given to you to confuse you it's also not been given to you to terrify you it's also not been given to you to, to frustrate you it's been given as a light of encouragement that God has revealed for His church throughout all ages. I wonder if you notice these, these words in the first three verses of Revelation. Revelation, number one, show, number two, communicated, number three, and then here's another one, read and hear, four and five. The purposes of God are not a mystery. They're uncovered. They are unveiled. Uh, the curtain, if you will, has been pulled back and we've been allowed to peer into the purposes of God. Uh, think of a painting. A painting that remains covered with the cloth until the day when the picture is done and complete and the veil is finally, the scaffolding, if you will, is finally removed. And we were able to see just how beautiful the purposes of God really are. In this letter, Christ removes the veil and allows his bride to see what he has planned for his and our victory. Revelation will tell us much about the return of Christ, and yet its panorama is broader than merely the final days of history. Revelation is more accurately an unveiling of the plan of God 
for the history of the world, especially the church. The purpose of Revelation is to, again, show the bond service of Christ, the things that must soon take place. And for those who seek to understand by reading and hearing, God promises to bless you and to make his message clear. As we're going up this mountain, God is going to bless you if you read and hear. As we're going up this mountain, God will encourage you. As we're going up this mountain, you'll be able to look back, see the world, if you will, in a clearer, in a clearer manner. I believe it's important for us as we move forward, because we might at times, and God forbid, be a little confused as we go forward. But I pray that as we move forward, that you would receive clarity, and you would receive the same kind of clarity that those who first received this letter received, that there would be no confusion. When they gathered, those who first received this letter, when they gathered on the Lord's day and heard this letter read aloud, do you know that they were not at all lost or confused? When the seven churches received this le- these letters, they weren't saying, I don't understand any of this. They understood completely what was being said. Well, you have the same spirit. And I pray that you also would completely understand the things that God has given to the church. They knew what these words of prophecy meant, and they were encouraged when they read and they heard. And I pray the same result would be for us 2,000 years later. Number two. Revelation has a certain genre. Revelation has a certain genre. Again, verses 1 through 3. The motif of what the prophet saw is prevalent in Revelation. If you've read through the letter before, there's one phrase that you've heard a number of times. It's this, I saw, I saw. Matter of fact, 52 times in the letter of Revelation, the phrase is, I saw. It might be overlooked, but what we are given is a vision. Something that John was allowed to see and to write down. In Revelation 1.10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, Write in a book what you see. Write in a book what you see. Revelation then comes to us as it came to the seven churches in writing. But it's literature is painting pictures for us. Visions, pictures of what John saw. Revelation is, if you like, a letter or book of symbols in motion. And one of the key themes of this letter is that things are not as they seem. That's one of the key themes of this letter. Things are not as they seem. Now, I'm going to give to you some of these examples and you're going to say, ah, of course. Here's a few examples of why things are not as they seem. It's one of the themes of Revelation. The church of Smyrna appears to be poor, but they're rich. And it is opposed by those who claim to be Jews, but they belong to Satan. Sardis has a reputation of being alive. But they're really dead. Laodicea thinks itself to be rich and self-sufficient, but it's a church, but it is a church that is destitute and naked. What the world sees is the weak and helpless, the hunted and the poor, defeated followers of Christ actually prove to be 
the ones who were the true overcomers in the triumph of the Lamb, who was who was slain, but is shown to be victorious. Things are not as they seem. It's all throughout the letter of Revelation. Dennis Johnson says in his commentary, on the plane of visible history, things are not what they appear. So Revelation's symbols make things appear as they are. What people actually see is not what things actually are. So what Revelation does is it makes the things that are not clear as to what they actually are. It has a certain letter, or the letter has a certain style, I should say again. And we will only be able to understand this letter if we, at the outset, acknowledge that this book, this letter, is not like any of the other books in the Bible, or at least, say, two or three. And it must be interpreted, or must not be interpreted, in the same exact manner as the other books. Again, we're reading a prophetic vision. We're not reading the book of Genesis. We're reading a prophetic vision. We're not reading the book of 1 Samuel. This book, a letter, it draws heavily on the Old Testament, especially the letter prophecy of Daniel and Ezekiel. We will see a lot of Daniel and Ezekiel in the letter of Revelation. Again, it draws heavily on the teachings of Christ. This letter contains a number of symbols, metaphors, analogies, allusions. They will be found all throughout this letter in a dominating fashion, which will require you and I to be precise in our understanding. The Lord Jesus will say to the seven churches the very thing that he would say in his parable. He who has ears, let him hear. Recognize the symbolism that is being employed in Revelation. Recognize the analogies that are being utilized. The allusions and the Old Testament references that are all throughout this letter. Our task will be when we see these diverse symbols... To make the right connections. If something is symbolizing something, what is it intending to symbolize? We are going to have to make those right connections to make sure that whatever this is symbolizing, we connect it to the proper symbol. I think it's important at this point to mention, some might be asking, if not now, at least at some point, aren't we supposed to take Revelation literally? Let me pause as I said that. Aren't we supposed to take Revelation literal? Or at least literal whenever possible. I think this is where many of us, including myself, have often taken a wrong turn when studying the letter of Revelation. We've, again, failed to understand the genre of this letter. Is it meant to be taken literal? It's not meant to be taken literal. Why? Because it is a prophetic vision. It's not a historical narrative. It's a prophetic vision. It's not one of the Gospels. It's a prophetic vision. It's not one of the epistles. Now, what do we mean by that? When we read Revelation, we must understand the images given do not correspond to some literal occurrence in the physical or most literal sense. What I mean by that is this. Jesus will not have a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth, literally. In Revelation, 
the double-edged sword is coming out of the mouth of Christ. Is there literally going to be a double-edged sword coming out of the mouth of Christ? The answer is no. Jesus does not actually look like a lamb with seven horns and seven eyes. In the same way that Jesus, when Jesus said he's the door, he's not actually a door. In the same way, when Jesus says that he's a rock, he's not actually a rock or literally a cornerstone, etc., etc., etc. It's symbolic. It's meant to mean something else, something greater than an actual rock or an actual sword. There's a greater meaning to it, but it does symbolize something greater. There's symbols that are meant to communicate something to us that is true. So, when God promises to rebuild the temple, we are not to think this. Okay, I need to keep my eyes on Israel. And as Israel is constructing their temple again, that means that Christ is going to return. Not the case. Why? Because the temple is not referring to a literal temple, but to a spiritual temple. Who's the temple that God is rebuilding? The church is the temple. It's a spiritual one. So to reiterate, symbolism, those images that have been given to us, are dominating throughout the letter of Revelation. And they've given to us to communicate something that is true, but not literal in the absolute sense of the words. If we, if, if as we're going up this mountain, if we don't know this, if we don't carry this tool with us, we will be very confused going forward. Richard Phillips said this, wonderful, I think. Some Christians seek to uphold a high view of Scripture by insisting that it must always, that's important, must always be taken literally. When applied to Revelation, this rule breeds only confusion. It is true that John literally received the, revel- the visions recorded in Revelation, but the visions consisted of symbols that must be interpreted, not literally, but symbolically. When we are reading the books when we are reading the Bible's historical books, such as Acts and Samuel, we will normally take the plain, literal meaning unless there is compelling reason to interpret a passage otherwise. In studying Revelation, we should reverse this approach and interpret visions symbolically unless there is good reason to take the passage literally. Does that make sense? With books like Acts and... and uh, what else did he say? One of the Gospels literally take those passages unless there's something that is meant to be taken symbolically. When we study Revelation, it's the opposite. Everything's symbol unless we see a reason for it to be literal. This is not to say that what we read here does not communicate real events that are presently or being presented symbolically. Is there a real return of Christ? Yes. Is there a real day of celebration? Yes. Is there a real throne of God? Yes. Those are the little, those are the literal passages that we say yes to. But there are far more symbolic than literal in Revelation. Number three. Revelation is only understood in light of the Old Testament. Revelation is only understood in light of the Old Testament. Revelation presents itself as the climax of prophecy. And in order to do this, it draws from all of scripture but especially from the old testament in revelation 13 there is a composite of four beasts that emerge you might know this emerge from the sea 
what are those four beasts? And will there literally be four beasts that arise out of the ocean one day? Is it going to be Godzilla and King Kong again? It's not. The four beasts that are referred to in Revelation 13 are a callback to Daniel chapter 7, the four worldly kingdoms. The two witnesses in Revelation 11. Is that going to be Moses and Elijah come back from the dead to prophesy to those who have been left behind, Anthony, and so that they can tell people to turn to Christ? No. No. from that's uh, the olive trees are from Zechariah chapter 4 and it's not two prophets coming back from the dead it's rather speaking about the church who speaks on behalf of Christ calling people to believe in him they are the olive tree and the lampstand they are the those who have the word of God calling people to believe in Christ who has the word of God and who calls people to believe in Christ it's the church The church has the word of God. The church calls the world to repent of their sin and turn to Christ. There are a number of references that we will, with God's help, further examine as they arise from the Old Testament. Now, this is important. Exact quotes are from the Old Testament. They are rare in Revelation. Exact quotes, uh, kind of a cut and paste from the Old Testament. They rarely happen in the, in the, the letter of Revelation. But the allusions to the Old Testament text, they're everywhere. The exact quotes from the Old Testament in Revelation are rare. Allusions to Old Testament texts are everywhere in the letter of Revelation. Revelation alludes to the Old Testament, listen to this, more than any other New Testament scripture. In Revelation, you will find more allusions to the Old Testament than any other text in the New Testament. Again, there's not a cutting and pasting, but there's a representing in a modified way in order to give us a greater understanding of those Old Testament references. Or even sometimes a fulfillment of those Old Testament references. There will be images taken from the Old Testament, but they are given to us as a fuller sense than even their original presentation. They're meant to communicate to us the climactic victory of Christ and the consummation of the kingdom. Imagine this. Imagine seeing something in real time happen. And the thing that's happening in real time, David becoming king, uh, David conquering uh, Goliath, uh, Elijah Standing in the midst of uh, being persecuted by uh, Jezebel. That while those things are happening, there's a greater meaning even to those things that God will later show us in subsequent scripture. And Revelation does that for us. It says that that really happened. Here's a greater meaning for that and why that took place fact is that the Old Testament, all of it, is pointing to a greater reality in Christ. They are meant to communicate something to us about Christ. And in Revelation, many times when we see the Old Testament passages, they are meant to give us greater insight about our Christ. Number four, this will be, uh, hopefully, I, I don't mean to overwhelm you with this point especially, but number four, 
Revelation's use of numbers. Revelation's use of numbers. As we walk through the letter, one thing that we are going to see over and over and over again are numbers. Now, you may be like me, and I was not good at math. I'm still not good at math. Uh, but the numbers are not meant to challenge your ability to multiply or divide. They are meant to challenge your ability to see their greater meaning. We will encounter these numbers, and they are meant to be always, listen to this, always symbolic. The numbers are always meant to be symbolic, not literal. Always meant to be symbolic, not literal. We will see numbers like 7, 10, 12. They are numbers. uh, There are other numbers, but these are the most common, 7, 10, 12. 7 symbolizes what? Completeness. Seven will be the number of completeness. So when we see sevens, it is meant to symbolize completeness. The letter to or of Revelation is addressed to who? Seven churches. They are meant to represent not dispensations, but rather the church of the Lord Jesus Christ throughout all of history until he returns. All of what the churches are and all of what they do represent all of what the church will be in all of its history until Christ returns. We will see the lamb uh, who has seven horns and seven eyes. This is meant to symbolize that Christ, the lamb, has complete power. But he also has complete knowledge and sees all. He's not literally a lamb with seven horns and seven eyes. That would be monstrous. Or, or, or monstrous. It's meant to communicate something to us about Christ. We will see <clears throat> more sevens arise. The number ten will also arise. And when tens arise, they are meant to they are meant to cause us to see multiples. Meaning, ten is always usually meant to be cubed. You remember when you learned that little tiny two. It's meant to be multiplied. We'll see the number 10 cubed. And it will represent 1,000. But it's not meant to be literal 1,000. Instead, it's meant to symbolize a vast number of years. 12 is the number of the people of God. And it will be identified with the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. The multiples of 12s are used when describing the fullness of the people of God in the new heavens and the new earth symbolized by the number 144,000. So, the JW's got it wrong. There are not just 144,000 people that will be in the new heavens and new earth. Rather, this is meant to represent all the people of God for all times, from the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles who have come to faith through their preaching, through their message, through their witness. So, again, to not overwhelm you with numbers at this point, suffice to say that numbers... We'll run into them, and they're meant to be symbolic. Some of you stop taking notes altogether when I start talking about these numbers. We'll get to them, right? They're not meant to be taken literal. They are meant to be symbolic, and as they arise, remember, they are meant to be symbolic, not taken literal. Let's go to number five. Revelation, this will be my longest point. Revelation is for the persecuted church. Revelation is for the persecuted church. Last time we learned from the moment that Christ arose from the dead that we have been living in the last days. That Christ said, in the last days you will have tribulation. But fear not, for he has overcome the world. Revelation is a historical letter that is firmly grounded in the times in which it was written. 
it is appropriately placed at the end of the scriptures because even though it is a prophetic vision, it is also meant to be a kind of final pastoral letter of encouragement to the church. To the church then and to the church throughout all the ages who will be suffering persecution. And the encouragement is this. Hold fast to Christ because Christ has won the victory. We can say that to our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan right now who are going through in, in their time a type of tribulation. This would be for them a type of the world is ending because the world as they know it is enclosing around them. This letter was relevant not only to its first hearers, but it's relevant to all sheep throughout all ages. This letter was traditionally addressed or understood as being given to the Apostle John. Now, in order, I'm going to do this now so I don't have to do this next week. John was the beloved disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who laid his, his head on the chest of Christ and said, Lord, is it me? John was given this vision during a time of being exiled to the island of Patmos. The island, most likely, was not deserted. For many of us, when we think of John being exiled to the island of Patmos, we think it's just John on the island. He's kind of cast away, and it's just him, and, and he has to kind of fend for himself. That's most likely not the case for John being exiled to the island of Patmos. It was most likely an inhabited island, but it was a remote island with no way on or off except for a boat. So John was exiled to this island for preaching the gospel, for being faithful in his preaching. John is uh, what we, who we, we believe to be, this John, the author of this letter. Uh, Richard Phillips notes, in support of why we believe this is John, he says this, Most noteworthy are the statements of the early church fathers in support of the apostles' authorship. These witnesses, now he's giving, um, he's giving credentials for why he believes John wrote this. These witnesses include second century writers such as Justin Martyr, Melito of, Sarlis, of Sardis, who was bishop of one of the churches to which John wrote, and Irenaeus, who also hailed from Sardis and knew Polycarp, those of you who know Polycarp, of Smyrna. Polycarp had been a personal disciple of the apostle John. Polycarp has a wonderful story if you if you want to go through the histories of time to, to study Polycarp. It has therefore been claimed that no other New Testament book has a stronger or earlier tradition than its authorship, about its authorship, than Revelation. So uh, there's a lot of witnesses who say the Apostle John is the author of this letter. Which I think is important because it leads us to a brief discussion on the the date of Revelation's writing. I pray that you see the connection between the church being persecuted and the date of this letter being written. There's a strong consensus among scholars that this letter was written during the last years of the reign of Domitian. The reign of Domitian, which is 95 AD. Now, if you're taking notes, that's an important note. 95 AD, during the end of Domitian's reign. This date agrees with the early church tradition through Irenaeus, who said that it was given not long, not a very long time since, but almost in our day, 
toward the end of Domitian's reign. Domitian was a Roman emperor. We'll talk about him more in a moment. For some of you, you may have heard that Revelation was written much earlier, before the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. You might have heard A.D. 70. Most who hold this view argue that Revelation, if it's written in A.D. 70, does not look forward to the return of Christ, but only prophesies Jerusalem's destruction and will assign the symbolic number, here it is, remember this, or you'll know this, 666, to the Roman emperor Nero. They will say that, that Nero was actually the Antichrist. Nero was a madman. Nero was the first to persecute Christians in a kind of smaller, isolated manner. There are reasons why we take the later date approach, the AD 95, along with accepting the testimony of Irenaeus. So why we're accepting 95 is because Irenaeus says this is when it was written, but also the persecution described in Revelation describes the beast and his demand for worship. Revelation, we'll, we'll get to that, will describe the beast as demanding worship, which corresponds not to the reign of Nero, but to the reign of Domitian. Domitian will require worship as if he was a god. It was Domitian who sent out a decree throughout the Roman Empire that he must be worshipped as, here's the word he would call himself, a God the Lord. God the Lord is what he was to be referred to as. Residents of the empire were ordered to come and to into the public square. They were to burn a pinch of incense and say the words, Kaiser Kurias, which means Caesar is Lord. This was during the reign of Domitian. Any refusal could result in imprisonment, confiscation of property, banishment, and even death. These letters that were written to the churches during that time were written to a church that would not confess that Kaiser, Caesar, was Lord, but they came up with a different phrase. It was Iesus Curios. Jesus Curios, which is Jesus is Lord. What boldness from our brothers and sisters during that time. There is no evidence that persecution was throughout the entire empire during that time. Persecution would come throughout the entire empire, Roman Empire, during the Diocesan persecution in 250 AD. The Diocesan persecution in 250 AD. But there is evidence that severe persecution took place in the province of Asia where these seven churches were located, not during the time of Nero, but during the time of Domitian. Finally, the description of the churches in Revelation 2 and 3 fits the circumstances of the later date. And it's possible that the church of Smyrna, one of the seven churches that's addressed, it didn't even exist during the time of Nero. And if that's the case, we take the later date. Richard Phillips, once again, the apocalypse revelation has an immediate purpose in strengthening the wavering hearts of the persecuted believers of the first century. And this book has a message for today. 
but we shall never be able to understand what the Spirit says to the churches of today unless we first of all study the specific needs and circumstances of the seven churches of Asia as they existed in the first century. In the midst of the most difficult days, the church then and the church today has been given a promised blessing of hope if we hold fast to Christ. Holding fast to Christ, even if that means costing you your property, your citizenship, and even your life. The blessing is reserved for those who do not sully their robes in the world, but who wash them in the blood of the Lamb. How many, from the time of Christ ascended until today, have held fast to Christ even in the face of death? All of the apostles, except for the one who wrote this letter, they all died a martyr's death. All of them. Beheading, thrown from the pinnacle of a temple, pierced with a sword, crucified upside down, boiled in hot oil, and other horrific endings. And their hope is the same as yours and mine. To the one who holds fast and who overcomes, Christ will give them the right to the tree of life. Revelation is a call for us to endure in the face of persecution. It's a call for us to stay pure. Two more. Number six. Revelation tells us of things that must soon take place. Revelation tells us of things that must soon take place. As we press on through this letter, we will see certain references that will require our attention. Time frames like 10 days, uh, 42 months. 1260 days a, a, a time and a times and a time and a half 1000 years the phrase that we will see is this though these things must, must soon take place and at the very end the time is near in Daniel 2.28 he points out that he is revealing what will be in the latter days that is in the end times the Greek translation of that verse, the word is used, apocalypse, in Revelation. Daniel is looking forward to a time when Revelation will be given. In using the same language, Daniel foretells the latter days, which begin for us in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1. These things must soon take place. Daniel prophesied that Christ's kingdom would arise during the fourth worldly kingdom. It is the Roman Empire under which John lived. We are in that final day. The divine kingdom that Daniel prophesied from afar, John prophesied is happening now. This shows that Revelation is not just focused on the final years before Christ returns. Even though we believe that from the time that Christ ascended, we have been living in the last days but Revelation is concerned with the entire church age or the entire age of history until Christ returns. The reign of Christ, which began during Daniel's fourth kingdom with the resurrection and ascension into heaven, continues until today, until Christ returns. Last point. Revelation declares that victory belongs to God and to his Christ. In this letter... We will read of celebration. We will read of songs of joy. We shall see the church celebrate the triumph of the Lamb as he overcomes his and our enemies. We shall see the vindication of the martyrs. 
and the inauguration of the new heavens and new earth, as well as the consummation of all things. We will see horrific enemies of Christ, but they are not the star of Revelation. For Christ will defeat those enemies, and Christ is the star of Revelation. The victory belongs to Christ, and he has caused us to take part in his glorious victory. I do pray that throughout this letter, and finally, at the end of it all, our response will be like that of the saints who first read this letter, which is this. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Well, we have much to learn, don't we? We have a long way to go. But I think that we have put into our our backpacks the appropriate tools that will help us along the way. And there will be others that we gather. There will be others that we gather along the way. But I pray that you are ready, uh, that you are energized for the journey ahead. And I pray that at the end of it, you and I will both be blessed as we together praise Christ for his great victory, the triumph of our Lamb. Let's pray.